Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Welcome back to another episode of The Bible Sojourner. I just wanted to say I appreciated the feedback on the last episode that I put up, which was on using the Mosaic Law and Ethics. I basically just recorded the lecture I gave at the conference in one of the breakout sessions, so the audio quality wasn't great, but I actually got some good feedback saying how people appreciated having access to it, so I appreciate those who reached out saying that. And I hope that the material is helpful because I think that's one of those issues that definitely needs to be talked about. We can't just ignore that. So thankful for that feedback. Today, we're going to be looking at an issue which I think is central to all of Old Testament theology, but specifically, we're going to be talking about it mainly with regard to Genesis, and that's the Abrahamic covenant. All right, so we did this for the Noahic covenant earlier, a couple episodes ago, and I want to try to do something similar with the Abrahamic covenant in talking about how the Abrahamic covenant fits into the overall picture of Genesis. And this is something that I feel so strongly about having taught through Old Testament survey multiple times, having done my own study on the Abrahamic covenant, read through Genesis multiple times in English and in Hebrew. And I just think this is something that a lot of times people skip over. But once you know what you're looking for, you can't not see this. And I just think this really gives such a benefit to people who are interested in reading more out of the Old Testament and understanding how things look. So we're going to talk about the Abrahamic Covenant. But in order to understand the Abrahamic Covenant, you actually have to understand the first couple chapters. So I'm not going to go into super detail since we've done that before. But Genesis 1 to 11 and Genesis 12 through 50 are usually described as units within Genesis. They are the structural units. At seminary, we memorize the structure of Genesis as Genesis 1 to 11 as the primeval history and Genesis 12 to 50 as the patriarchal history. So usually commentators and scholars acknowledge that there's a break there, but it's more of a thematic break, not necessarily one that says they are completely unrelated. Because Genesis 12 certainly connects to Genesis 11 with the genealogy that's listed there, as well as the previous material, as we'll talk about. So although the break can be useful in thinking about it that that way, it's mainly just a chronological break because once you get to Genesis 12, you really zero in and talk about the life of Abraham and his descendants at a myopic viewpoint instead of talking about this broad range of history that has been done in Genesis 1 to 11. And so that's the division there. And overall, if you remember the episode on the Noahic covenant, Genesis 1 to 11 is is contributing to one main factor, and that's the depravity and sinfulness of man. And without going through all of it again, I would just say after man falls in Genesis 3 and God gives mankind a promise of a redeemer, Genesis 3.15, one who's going to come and right what is wrong, that is a beautiful promise in the midst of judgment. And after God does that, there is Genesis 4, which is largely discouraging. You have Cain killing Abel, and then you have the line of Cain 
uh, solidified in in propagating and uh, rebelling against God. You have Genesis 5, the presence of death, and you have Genesis 6, the daughters of man intermarrying with angelic hosts or the ungodly line of set of Cain. You, you could think of uh, either interpretation of that. It communicates something is incredibly wrong with humanity. Even within the flood narrative itself, you have God in Genesis 6 saying that mankind's heart is bent on evil. And then in Genesis 8 and 9, you have that re-solidified. At the end of Genesis 8, God says, I will never flood the world again, but I know man and his heart is bent on evil from his youth. So there's a tremendous theme riding through all of Genesis 3 through 11 that even after, and especially after, in fact, because mankind has sinned and rebelled against God, by themselves, mankind will never do what is right. By themselves, mankind will never pursue God. They will never uh, help God in any way. This is something that we understand as we're tracing the biblical narrative in Genesis 1 to 11 is the big takeaway that you're supposed to see, whether it be the fall in Genesis 3, uh, Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, uh, you have the Genesis 6, daughters of men and the sons of God, uh, even Genesis 9, the sin of Ham with Noah. You that, That's one of the big takeaways of that narrative is you're thinking, well, maybe sin was left pre-flood, but it's not. Sin came over on the ark, as it were. And so sin is a tremendous, tremendous problem. And you see this theme building up even within the major narratives of Genesis 6 and Genesis 11, where you see that there are men of renown. That's usually what the translation is, men of a name, men of renown in Genesis 6-4. And we see in Genesis 11 the same name, the this, this similar kind of phrase there where people are said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves in Genesis 11.4. So one of the sub-themes that supports this in Genesis 6 and 11 is the desire of humanity to have fame for themselves, to make a name for themselves. And so this this is a big buildup as, as we're walking through scripture, as we're, as we're looking through all of this, we get to... Genesis 11, and we're pretty discouraged because rebellion has happened at every single corner. And finally, in Genesis 11, through judging the people and scattering them with different languages, the Lord institutes obedience because mankind was supposed to disperse and scatter on the earth and fill the earth, but they were unified in one place. Presumably at the land of Shinar, they were constructing this this tower as a temple-like structure where they were allying against God once more. And so when we read that, this is obviously very discouraging. But Genesis 12 comes on the heels of that. And so here you have God intervening in human history, right? So God is intervening in human history and selecting someone who is no better than anyone else, by the way. In fact, one of the passages to reference here is Joshua 24 at the beginning of the chapter. Joshua, in relating Israel's history to the people when they're in the land of Canaan after the conquest, and he's trying to encourage them to be faithful to the Lord. Joshua reminds them that God selected Abraham, and Abraham was 
an individual who was worshiping other gods. That's what how Joshua describes him. So it's not as if Abraham was a unique God follower and God said, I will reward you and call you out for myself. No, Abraham was called out from a pagan culture. God chose him not because of goodness, not because of might, not because of nobility, but God chose him because he wanted to. And so that's one of the deep mysteries of God is why Abraham, why not anyone else? But God chooses Abraham, who is at this point called Abram, but I'm just going to keep referring to him as Abraham just for ease of reference. And God intervenes in human history and selects Abraham and says, go out from your country, your kindred, your father's house to land that I'll show you. This is Genesis 12. And then in verse two, he says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. And so if you don't see the connection between the theme there in Genesis 11 and Genesis 6, you can't be helped, right? This this is obvious in your face. Hey, mankind has been struggling to produce recognition, fame, a name, and I'm going to give that to you unilaterally. This is how you do it. The Lord has has chosen to make your name great in contrast to those who have been selfishly pursuing their greatness. I am going to make your name great, Abraham, for my purposes and for my glory. And so this is this is a beautiful, beautiful structural connection here between the first parts of Genesis and Genesis 12. So backing backing away a little bit here and, and talking about this, one of the things that scholars have, have observed, and I completely agree with this, is that structurally, Genesis 12 is, is an amazing focal point here where the, the story, the history, revelation turns. I mean, you can obviously tell just reading through Genesis, it's not as if the content necessarily changes, but you, you now you have this microscopic viewpoint into human history. God intervenes and, and sets, sets Abraham apart in a very special way, makes a covenant with him that is very unique, right? And, and did not exist prior. Okay, so the the Abrahamic covenant did not exist prior. This is a new covenant that God gives with Abraham and his descendants. And so there are a lot of things that set this apart. And what this seems to indicate that then is that Genesis 12 is essentially the answer to what has been wrong in the first chapters of Genesis. So Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, we've been struggling as humanity. We just have not been helping at all. There's there's just no hope for humanity as we read Genesis 3 through 11, but God intervenes. And that's where we have a major, major shift. And so, of course, our hope relies on God completely then. And so the Abrahamic covenant is a, is a large part of this new hope that we have in God. And so as humanity then, the Abrahamic covenant focuses on Abraham and his descendants, but it's not just for Abraham and his descendants. Notice how God continues to explain what he's going to do. He says, I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And now that's, that's a really important phrase there is that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that phrase is repeated periodically throughout the Old Testament, actually, as a reference to Abraham's role and the covenant that God makes with him, and even connection to the Messiah. And Paul himself makes that connection in Galatians. 
So we, we have here, even in the very outset of the Abrahamic covenant, a connection to a broader plan of even Genesis 3.15, how the Messiah is going to come, this individual who's going to write what is wrong. Well, now we're told that it's going, that that individual is going to be associated somehow with Abraham and his family, right? But there's so much more about this Abrahamic covenant than just the, the Messiah, right? And I'm not, I'm not downplaying the fact that the Messiah's role is going to be heavily involved with this family. That's obvious throughout the discussion of the Abrahamic covenant. But the richness of the Abrahamic covenant is really just amazing and marvelous and beautiful with regard to the story of Genesis alone. And that's that's one of the things that I'm very passionate about is, is trying to teach students about the connection between the Abrahamic covenant and how you read Genesis as a whole. Okay, so one of the things I, I want to point out right away is that some people would argue that there are multiple covenants God makes with Abraham. One of the most well-known scholars who talks about this is T. Desmond Alexander, and I have my students read his his book on the Pentateuch in in a master's level class, and I think he does a fantastic job with his book. I just don't agree with him when he thinks that there are multiple covenants with Abraham. He would divide the Abrahamic covenant as we see it, say, in Genesis uh, 12 and 15 with a different covenant in Genesis 17, which he would call the covenant of circumcision. And you have Stephen in Acts 7 making a covenant uh, or making a reference to a covenant of circumcision. So some scholars do say that there are two covenants there, that you have the covenant God makes with Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, but then you have another covenant that God makes in Genesis 17. But I don't think that that's accurate. I think that Genesis 17 is both thematically connected with the prior discussion of the Abrahamic covenant and also connected theologically throughout the Old Testament. So, for example, one of the big uh, passages to study with regard to this is Psalm 105, because in Psalm 105, in the discussion of Israel's history, there's only one reference or there's a reference to only one covenant. So in Psalm 105, 8 through 10, for example, in reference to the historical past, God's relationship with Israel, it says he remembers his covenant, singular, forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant, singular, that he made with Abraham. And then it says his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. So in other words, this same promise was given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and it's one covenant, right? So historically, that's been the, the main view. And although there are other individuals who try to see two, I just think it works way better both in Genesis itself as well as holistically the scriptural discussion about the singular covenant that God made with Abraham. And believe me, when I was in seminary, I really wanted to have two covenants with Abraham because I was really excited about that because I'd not heard that before. And I thought that might be pretty cool to argue for, but you just can't make it work. I don't think so. So I don't think there are multiple covenants with Abraham. I think there's just one. Psalm 105 talks about that. Other scriptures talk about that. And what do we see in this covenant? Okay. Now this is something that I've mentioned before on the podcast. And this is drilled into every Bible student's mind is the components of the Abrahamic covenant are land, seed, blessing. Okay, those three components are the foundational principles and guideposts of the Abrahamic covenant. 
is land, seed, blessing. Now, there are multiple passages which which discuss the Abrahamic blessings and and land and seed promises as they and some focus on one aspect, some focus on another. But those are the three components. You see a reference to all three in Genesis 12. Genesis 13 focuses mainly on land. In Genesis 15, you have another discussion of land and seed. And then you have in Genesis 17, a focus on all of those again. And then in Genesis 22, you have a a summary statement that's given all of those passing references as well. And so you, you see throughout the scriptures, these references to these themes, land, seed, and blessing that are built into the Abrahamic covenant. When God makes this promise with Abraham, he makes it promising these three components. I will give you land. I will give you offspring. Now, I would say that offspring or that seed promise to Abraham exists on a plural level, a a progeny level. So in other words, as the sand of the seashore, as the stars in the heavens, so your descendants will be. In other words, there's a promise of a multiplicity of descendants. But this is something that's been well established as well, is that within the Abrahamic covenant itself and some of these passages, I think that there is a reference to a individual that's going to come as well. And that seems to be found in multiple places. Maybe the easiest reference there would be in Genesis 22:17. And in Genesis 22:17, we're told that God says, "I will bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring." So that's the same word for seed there. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, I think this is actually the same place that Paul has in mind in Galatians where he says, now, now he did not say offsprings, but to offspring. So in other words, Paul was saying that God had made a reference to a singular entity, a singular seed, which was Christ. And I think that that's what he has in mind in Genesis 22, 17. That, that seems to be the passage that most scholars and I myself would identify with what Paul is is zeroing in on there for his biblical theology. So there is a promise of a individual offspring that's going to come and he will possess the gate of his enemies, but you also have a plurality promised as well. And then you have land and those specific boundaries are given in Genesis 13 as well as in later passages And then you have the specific covenant itself established in Genesis 15. Okay. Now that's just a survey of the blessing, the seed, the land, land seed blessing, how that is formulated in the covenant itself. But now the main point, basically the entire point of this podcast is to highlight how Understanding the Abrahamic covenant like that as a paradigm then allows you to interpret the narratives as you continue to read. From Genesis 12 on, when you understand the Abrahamic covenant, you begin to see how this covenant is being implemented in the narratives and how it impacts our reading. Now, one thing that's often downplayed about the Abrahamic covenant, and and I saved the best for last just because it's downplayed, is that built into the Abrahamic covenant is the reciprocal blessing or curse. Okay, reciprocal blessing or curse. And how does the reciprocal blessing or curse work? How somebody treats Abraham or his offspring 
will reciprocate to them. So blessing for blessing, cursing for cursing. So this is found in Genesis 12, 3. So God says, I will bless those who bless you. So there's sing, a singular uh, idea here in, in what follows is, in other words, uh, in Genesis 12, 3, anyone who blesses you, I will bless them. And anyone in, in verse 3 who dishonors you, I will curse. Now, some translations, which this is a downside, but some translations actually translate him who curses you, I will curse. But there are actually different words here. And so I like that the ESV differentiates by saying him who dishonors you, I will curse. Because the, the word for dishonor here, the first word for cursing, is a slightly less term. Uh, it's, it's not as significant. It's not as intense as the other cursing. And so the point is that if anyone mistreats you, if anyone dishonors you, it could be little. It doesn't have to be coming up with a full-blown hex or a curse. But if anyone dishonors you because you are my people and you deserve to be honored, but if anyone dishonors you or doesn't treat you the right way, then I will curse that individual or that nation or whoever, right? So this is built into the Abrahamic covenant then is this reciprocal blessing or curse, all right? Now, immediately then, you start to have dividends if you have your mind paying attention to this. Immediately in Genesis 12, we are told about a story where there's a famine in the land. And so Abraham goes down to Egypt to sojourn there. Now, Abraham, he doesn't really impress us with his uh, abilities to obey the Lord, be a man of integrity, etc. There is a lot to be desired in Abraham's life. That's okay. Again, just a reminder, Abraham's not perfect. He's not one of those individuals that is necessarily a model for us with regard to daily life, right? That's something that we understand. So he goes down to Egypt and he lies to the Egyptians saying that Sarah, at that, at this point, her name is Sarai. Sarah, his, his wife is actually his sister. And so they, they spread that lie. And in verse 15, we're told when the princes of the Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And so he dealt well with Abraham. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels given to Abraham. But here's the thing. Now, the question is, did Pharaoh, is Pharaoh intentionally mistreating Abraham by taking his wife? No. But God still afflicts and punishes the Pharaoh because of his mistreatment, dishonoring of Abraham. And so in verse 17, we see that the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? And so what ends up happening is Pharaoh then says, obviously, I've done what's wrong. And I see that because of the judgment that I'm receiving from the hand of the Lord. And so Pharaoh gave men orders concerning Abraham and they sent him away along with his wife with everything he had. So right away, him who I bless or whoever blesses you, I will bless. And whoever dishonors you, I will curse, right? This is, this is an incredible uh, highlight with regard to how the narratives of Genesis unfold. Now, you might say, well, that's just one thing. It's following immediately after the Abrahamic covenant. That makes sense. But it actually goes beyond that. Because in Genesis 13, we see the same kind of thing. 
uh, here is a story about Abraham and Lot separating. And in, in Genesis 13, the interesting thing is that the big question is, what are you going to do, Abraham, when, when we find out that, that Lot and Abraham can't coexist because they have too, too much going on here? What, what are we going to do? Well, Abraham does a good job, I think, here in trusting God and say, telling Lot, you choose wherever you go, the Lord will take care of me. In other words, he gives Lot first, first choice because he knows that, that God has promised to take care of him. And so after Lot chooses what he thinks is the best, the Lord then says, yes, you are correct. I am going to take care of you because of the covenant. And so then in verse 14 through 18, God tells him, the land, all this land, whatever you can see, wherever you walk, that's what I'm going to give to you. And so it's just a reaffirmation. This is, I think some commentators have called Genesis 13 the first test, if you will, the first test to what's going on uh, and how will Abraham respond given that God has promised him land and blessing and provision. How is Abraham going to think through this? Well, something similar in Genesis 14, God has promised that Abraham will be a great nation. Well, one of the interesting things about Genesis 14 is that you actually see Abraham going toe to toe with these kings of the land. You, you know, you have this, this, this war being described in Genesis 14. You have all of these kings the king of Goyim, the kings of Sodom, you have the king of Gomorrah, you have the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, which is Zor. All of these kings are existing, are, are fighting, and Sodom and Gomorrah are taken, uh, or at least they, the opposing army emerges victorious. Lot is captured along with his family. And so Abraham actually goes and fights against these armies to get Lot back. And so the point being, I think, when we're reading this narrative is not just some interesting story about, oh, isn't it interesting that Abraham fought with 318 men? But the point is that Abraham is becoming a significant force to be reckoned with. Now, at this point, Abraham has no children, but he has enough people with him uh, to, to challenge these kings of the cities around him. So Abraham is essentially functioning like a king here in the sense that he's bringing his trained men, his armies, and he's showing that the Lord is indeed blessing him with, with possessions and with might and power, right? And so I think that that's a big part of Genesis 14. Well, as you go on, Genesis 15 uh, obviously relates to the Abrahamic covenant. I would, I would say that this is where the covenant proper is ratified. So I often describe Genesis 12 as kind of a handshake or a preemptive agreement. And then Genesis 15 is the signing on the dotted line, making the actual contract or the covenant. And then Genesis 17 and 22 are further explanations of what this means. It's kind of an, not necessarily an addendum, but perhaps just a further uh, help uh, in understanding what this covenant means and the implications of it. So Genesis 15 obviously relates to the Abrahamic covenant. And even in Genesis 15, we have both the promise that Abraham and his descendants, well, his descendants, since Abraham will be dead, are going to go to Egypt and they're going to sojourn there for 400 years. And then God will bring them out in faithfulness to his promise. 
And as part of this chapter, you have a reiteration of the land promise in verses 18 through 21. He says, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. That's very specific boundary markers, right? Very specific boundary markers, which Israel is being granted by God. And so this is an integral part of the covenant from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So all of these are to belong to Israel. So this is a very extensive, voluminous land that God promises. And then you have in chapter 16, a relationship issue because Abraham and Sarah don't know where their promised child is going to come from. And so they kind of formulate this plan to use a maidservant, an Egyptian maidservant. And as they're attempting to create a offspring that's going to fulfill God's promise, they realize that this is not going to work. And God actually punishes them for that in one sense by telling them that this you know, was wrong. And what's interesting is at the end of that chapter, in verse 16, it says that Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. But then in verse 1, the very next verse says Abram was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to him. So in other words, there's a 13-year gap. There's a 13-year gap between the last verse of chapter 16 and the first verse of chapter 17. And it seems that God is kind of giving him the silent treatment. Uh, and I think this was a... Now, obviously, you we're reading between the lines, right? There could be constant communication that we're just not told. As scripture relates the story, there's the silent treatment here where Abram must have been wondering whether or not God was going to be faithful to his promise, saying, okay, God had made a covenant with me, but did I just blow it by trying to do my own thing to raise up an heir that God could use out of my own volition? And so now God comes back and says, I am God Almighty, walk before me, be blameless, I have made my covenant with you, and then this is the sign. And so he institutes the sign of circumcision. So this is the covenant remix or rehashing and the giving of the sign of circumcision. What's also important here is that this is the first reference you have in the Abrahamic covenant, although it's repeated later on throughout Genesis, in verse 6, where God promises that nations and kings will come from Abraham. So again, this isn't just going to benefit Abraham and his offspring, but there's also going to come other nations and other kings that come from Abraham, right? So there's, there's a royal nature to this covenant. God is promising that I am going to make your name great. There's going to be significant people that come from you. Now, as we go on throughout the narratives, and here I have to kind of nitpick. One of the things we could do is we could go into exhaustive detail on this. And I think what you would see is that the Abrahamic covenant continues to provide a appropriate paradigm through which we can view these stories. But I'm just going to nitpick a little bit just to highlight some of the easy ones to see. So in Genesis 18, we have the, the Lord and two angels visiting Abraham. And what we, what we see though is that God 
God gives Abraham insight into what he's going to do because of his relationship with Abraham as in the Abrahamic covenant. So in verse 17 of chapter 18, the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? See, that's the reference that we saw in Genesis 12.3. Here it is again. So God's saying, since all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him, since he has this privileged relationship with, with me, should I not reveal to him what I'm about to do? In verse 19, he says, for I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised, what he has promised him. So the Lord reveals that he's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. And then what we begin to see is that Abraham intercedes for Lot, for the righteous, uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so this is another one of those pictures where the role of intercessor begins to be portrayed and understood. At this point in biblical history, we don't really have a, a very good handle or a picture on what what an intercessor can do and, and how somebody can stand in between God and his judgment and those who are about to be judged and plead on their behalf. And so because of Abraham having a privileged role, he is the literally the chosen one. <laughs> I use that uh, term because the Bible uses it in verse 19 there. Because God had chosen him, God gives him a special role and a responsibility and a privilege to be able to stand in front of others and plead on their behalf. And so this is something that Abraham does, and he does so passionately. And and unfortunately, what we quickly find out is that there are not righteous people other than Lot in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, we, we continue on. As we march through the narratives, we see these themes picking up uh, time and time again. Now we see Genesis 20 where it's a similar story to Genesis 12, where you have Abraham lying uh, along with Sarah, his wife, to Abimelech, the king of Gerar, uh, saying that Sarah is his sister. And so God comes to him in a dream and says, I'm about to kill you all. And Abimelech says, whoa, wait a second. Why would you kill an innocent people? He's the one who told me that she was his sister. And so God says, yes, I know that you did this in the innocent of the innocent uh, innocence of your heart, like this was not something that you, you intentionally did, but I am still judging you because, remember, this is the Abrahamic covenant. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. And so this is a big part. Abimelech didn't know that's what he was doing, but now he's about to receive judgment. And so he quickly goes to Abraham, and that's what God tells him to do, is go and have Abraham intercede for you because he's a prophet. So again, the special relationship is that Abimelech, if you want to live, you better get Abraham to intercede for you, right? Abrahamic covenant. And so Abraham does intercede. And you see that at the end in verse 18 of chapter 20, we're told that the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So judgment had taken place. There was judgment being invoked upon the people of Gerar because of their mistreatment of Abraham and his family, right? So this shows up all over the place. 
Now, even in Genesis 21, we see the birth of Isaac. It's framed as a continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic promise is, is given to Isaac. It's repeated to Isaac. In Genesis 22, we see what many theologians have labeled the final test of Abraham, where he's given the test of, will you kill your son because I tell you to? Uh, by faith. And so Abraham goes through with that test. And so the Lord blesses him and tells him exactly what the covenant is, is going to mean in verse 17. There's a repetition of that. Now in Genesis 23, you have another narrative where this one kind of is strange because we're told about the death of Sarah, but the death of Sarah is actually a circumstance in which Abraham gets land from the Hittites. He's able to buy land to bury Sarah, and now he owns land in the land of Canaan. So the Hittites sell him land. And so this is, a you might say, well, why is this story included here? Well, because this is a record of God being faithful and giving the first part of the land to the people. Okay, so again, it fits in with the Abrahamic covenant, the paradigm of what God had promised. It's being fleshed out in the narratives. Well, in Genesis 24, we have another similar uh, aspect here. You have Rebecca being chosen as a wife for Isaac. You know, I probably have seen Genesis 24 mentioned most often with regard to dating. It's often pictured as this is what you do to date. Make sure you pray these prayers and ask God to you know show you a woman who can bench, you know, 200 pounds or something like that. I don't know. Whatever. That's probably, I say that because in Genesis 24, uh, you know, Rebecca's quite the woman and she, you know, gets the water for all the camels and things like that. That's not an easy task. But regardless, that's not the main point of Genesis 24. Genesis 24 is a part of the thread, which is expositing the Abrahamic pro promise. And even in the story itself, you have the people blessing Rebecca and listen to what they say. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. And may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. So again, very similar phrase there, which has been found in all of these Abrahamic pro proclamations, where your offspring possesses the gate of those who hate him or uh, the gate of his enemies. And so this is Rebecca fitting into that Abrahamic promise. So Rebecca and Isaac now are fitting in. They are continuing on this, this promise. In other words, God's saying, yes, these are the ones through whom the promise will continue. Now, we can continue on. Obviously, we have to kind of fast forward for sake of time. Uh, Genesis 35, the Abrahamic promise is repeated to Jacob. And if you fast forward all the way to the end of Genesis, I think this is probably one of the, one of the best books of, of, books, I mean the stories within Genesis, Genesis 37 through 50, the story of Joseph. It's a very elongated section, but it's not just, and this is where some sometimes people are all about following, you know, the example of Joseph. They love to think of him as somebody who's supposed to be highlighted or mimicked or somebody who is worth emulating. And I'm not really that convinced. I, I tend to be pretty hard on Joseph. I know there are some bright spots with him, but he tends to be a jerk in many ways and also very proud and arrogant, but who isn't at 17 years old, I suppose. So Joseph has some problems, but that's not even the point. The point is not to not to just use Joseph as a paradigm or evaluate on the basis of him. The point of the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50 is all about God's faithfulness 
to the Abrahamic covenant in preserving the people of Israel. So it's all this master, masterful planning of God to get the people of Israel into Egypt. In fact, one of the things that's, that's interesting is in 37, we see that, that Joseph is sold into slavery and he's brought to, to Egypt. So that's where Gen- you have Genesis 37 starting with, oh, look at this family, but it's not such a wonderful family. And Joseph gets sold into slavery after the brothers are trying to kill him. So I guess being sold into slavery is a step up from that. Thank you, Reuben. But Joseph is sold into slavery. And what ends up happening then is you have this weird in-between chapter in Genesis 38, which some people are like, what in the world? Now we we have this story about Judah and the Judah sees a certain daughter uh, of a Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and conceived and bore a son. And what in the world's going on? Well, I think the reason this story is here in the structure of the story of Joseph, for example, is to show what awaits Israel if they stay in the land of Canaan. Is that what is going to happen? Here you have Judah, and he's intermarrying with a Canaanite. That is a no-no, right? You give Israel enough time, maybe within a couple generations, you won't be able to tell Israel apart from Canaanites. In fact, that's actually what happens to the Philistines, by the way, is that the Philistines, they come from across the Mediterranean, they land on the coastal plain there of, of Israel, and people who have done DNA testing on the bones of the Philistines there in the cities of Gath and Ashkelon and, and the other Phil, Ekron and the other Philistine cities, they, they have determined that within a few generations, the DNA was completely intermixed with Canaanite DNA. And so there was hardly any genetic difference. That doesn't mean that they didn't keep their same cultural identity and cultural persuasion, but DNA-wise, the Philistines readily mixed with the Canaanites very quickly. And so the same fate would most likely await Abraham and his descendants uh, at this point, Jacob and his 12 sons. There aren't very many of them, right? 70 are what se- are the ones who are said to go down to Egypt. So this is what awaits the Israelites if they wait in the land of Canaan. They will be, they will be intermarried with the Canaanites and lose any kind of special identity that they have been given. And so the Lord then orchestrates this narrative to rescue Israel out of this opportunity, out of this problem, and puts them in Egypt where there's a, there's a incubator status that awaits them. So being in Egypt, the, the Egyptians were told multiple times in this Joseph narrative that it was an abomination to be a shepherd to the Egyptians and the Egyptians wouldn't even eat with the Israelites. And so this was a perfect place for the Israelites to stay separate and segregated and to grow and develop as a nation instead of being intermarried and lose their identity. They, they were placed in Egypt. They had plenty of land and resources to be able to grow as a nation and, and populate. And so they go down as 70 or 75, we're told, depending on which uh, variant you take. And also they develop into probably 1.5 million uh, if we if we give a low estimate of when they come out in the Exodus. 
So the story of Joseph really uh, is remarkable to at its placement in Genesis to kind of focus on this this culmination because even even as God is taking care of Israel as He's promised, He's providing for them, He's developing them into a nation. That is the big takeaway. But even within this story, you also have components of the those who bless you, I will bless; those who curse you, I will curse. Well, Egypt ends up promoting Joseph, right, and saying, "Hey, there's nobody else like this. This guy has it down. He knows what he's talking about." So let's put him in charge of doing all of this stuff and he'll orchestrate the collection of the taxes and the grains and all of that. So Joseph does all of that and he is benefiting the Egyptians because of that. They are, they are, they are receiving blessing because they have elevated Joseph to such a prominent place. So those who, those whom you bless or those who bless you, I will bless. And then later on though, I think it would be wise to c- complete the story of the Egyptians is they turn on Israel. They enslave Israel. They treat Israel poorly, to say the least, right? And what happens? Well, God punishes the Egyptians severely. Those who dishonor you, the one who dishonors you, I will curse. And I don't think anyone could ever say that the Egyptians were not recipients of God's cursing. Because they suffered some of the most devastating, annihilating, and humiliating, in every sense of the word, plagues. And even there, after all that, their entire army was devastated uh, as Israel escaped across the Red Sea. So you have the big, the big point that I'm trying to get across here. You have the Abrahamic covenant being given the initial part in Genesis 12 and then further expanded and explained. And then as you march through the book of Genesis, this is what you're seeing time and time again is the Abrahamic covenant and the, those com- components of land seed blessing are the paradigm through which you can read these narratives and you see the development, right? And of course, Genesis 12.3 is very important to the Abrahamic covenant as well. Those who bless you, I will bless. And those who dishonor you or him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, in the last part here, I want to focus on one more thing and just ask outside of the Pentateuch, are these promises still in play? And I would say the answer is obviously yes. We could look uh, in Joshua and see the connections to the Abrahamic covenant where, where God is saying, this is the land that I'm going to give you, but not all of it is taken yet. And then in Judges, it says that that the people did not take all the land that God had promised them, etc. There, there are themes that we could trace through that. We could even trace it into Samuel and into Kings and into the Psalms. So obviously, the Abrahamic covenant is a very, very powerful theme throughout Scripture. But one of the things I want to throw out there is Ezekiel 25, which I think is is... Uh, a really helpful passage with regard to the punishment of another nation. And in Ezekiel 25, we're given a prophecy against Ammon, A-M-M-O-N, Ammon. And the Ammonites, they get the prophecy from Ezekiel. And this is what it says in verse 3. It says, because you said, aha, over my sanctuary when it was profaned and over the land of Israel when it was made desolate, and over the house of Judah when they went into exile. Therefore, behold, I'm handing you over 
to the people of the east for a possession, and they shall set their encampment among you, and make their dwellings in your midst. And then it talks about the destruction that God's going to uh, continue to reap upon them. And then this is the culmination of the prophecy. Because you have clapped with your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul against the land of Israel. Therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you, and I will hand you over as plunder to the nations. Well, what we see here in the in the prophecy is that God is targeting the Ammonites simply because they rejoiced that Israel was destroyed. And you might say, well, Israel was judged by God and God prophesied that that was going to happen. And it was completely an element of justice that that happened. So in other words, Israel deserved it. God said they deserved it. God gave it to them specifically at the hand of the Babylonians. So what's the problem? And, you know, another thing to consider here is that even Proverbs 11 says that people rejoice when the wicked perish. So Israel, by no stretch of the imagination, was was righteous. They, they were not righteous. And they were wicked. So why would it not be allowed to have rejoicing when Israel perishes, when the temple is destroyed, when the people are made desolate? Why, why is that not okay? Well, the reason it's not okay is because these are God's chosen people. It would be like, like rejoicing in a, in a family, rejoicing that your older brother has received some significant punishment. That's just not right because he's near and dear to the family. He is, he's the firstborn. He's the one that is supposed to be a leader. He's the one who's, who's given a special task by God to fulfill and he hasn't fulfilled it. And so, it's not something to cheer over. It's something to weep over and to lament over. And so, again, I, I call to mind the Genesis 12, 3, right? Those that dishonor you, those that mistreat you, those I will curse. And so this is a good reminder. I think both Ezekiel 25, as well as some of the narratives we looked at in Genesis, that it, it doesn't matter whether or not Abraham is, is being righteous or not. It doesn't matter whether or not Israel is in sin or not. They still deserve a, a special privilege. It's kind of, it's kind of like uh, being made in the image of God. Sin does not remove being made in the image of God. Everyone deserves to be treated with honor and dignity as befitting of those who are made in the image of God. Well, in a similar sense, Israel as a nation is given a special role in the plan of God as a recipient of the Abrahamic covenant. And so that is supposed to be recognized by individuals and nations. And here you have the Ammonites being judged, not because they participated in attacking Israel or anything like that, but that they simply rejoiced that Israel was suffering. That was, that was their sin against Israel. And so that's what God is judging them for is that they were dishonoring Israel and so that they are then they are receiving God's curse. And so I think that's that's a sobering reminder. Now, I would ask is the Abrahamic covenant still in operation today? And I would argue it is. Uh lots of people would agree that it's still in in place, but they would often try to change it. Though I would argue that Paul says in Galatians 3:17 
the giving of another covenant doesn't nullify the Abrahamic covenant. So I don't think you can change it. I don't think you can end it. I think the Abrahamic covenant is still in play. And remember, that means the land, seed, and blessing components are still in play with the Abrahamic covenant. And so I think that there remains a lot of applicability of the Abrahamic covenant. And I think that includes even the Genesis 12, 3. I I would say, this is a brave thing of me to say, I suppose, but I would say that's one reason why America has received blessing is not because we've been righteous. We have not been righteous. America has been very terrible uh, in many ways, but I'm happy to live here. I think it's the best nation on the planet. But uh, one of the things I think that America has done right has been supporting Israel positively. And I think that that has been something that God has has blessed America for. And I think that would coincide with the Abrahamic covenant. And I'm not saying that Israel is perfect in what they're doing. And I'm not saying they are a secular state. They're in disobedience and rebellion to God. But I do think that there is an element where how, how a country relates to Israel is a conduit of blessing still. I think that that still is in play with regard to the Abrahamic covenant. So in any case, even if you don't agree with that point, I think it's still obvious how the Abrahamic covenant functions as an interpretive paradigm in Genesis, showing how the stories are illustrating and expanding our understanding of the relationship between God and his special people. So the Abrahamic covenant, once it comes on the scene in Genesis 12, then the later narratives, almost all of them, I mean, I'm not saying there aren't exceptions there, but but many of those stories then are picking up on the Abrahamic covenant themes and are fleshing those out. And if you aren't aware of the Abrahamic covenant and you don't have a good understanding of exactly what that means, you're going to miss out on the significance of some of these narratives in Genesis. Well, I hope that's been helpful for you. You can always reach out to me through the contact form on my website, petergaiman.com. You can also access blogs and articles that I've written there as well as subscribe to my weekly newsletter there. If you want more information on the Shepherds Seminary, you can visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.